to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We are in, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, we are days away from Christmas, and uh, you can feel the excitement uh, or the pressure, depending on if you've got your shopping done or not. Um, But there is something about this in this passage that we just read, we're kind of continuing in our Luke series, and here we are in Luke 2, the first 14, 15 verses of that chapter. And you find very early in this scene that there's a lot of, there are angels all around, where angels abound. This whole narrative, this story, last week we talked about the song of Mary and the song of Zechariah. And, and we've had, if you, if you think about Matthew's account and Luke's account, between the two of them, there's six different angelic appearances. Something cosmic is going on. Something big is afoot. There's something that we're supposed to say, hang on, wake up, pay attention to this. In Luke, Gabriel comes to Zechariah, Gabriel comes to Mary, here's a host of angels singing to shepherds. In Matthew's gospel, we've got Mary and Jesus being taken to Egypt when there's an angelic encounter with Joseph, giving them specific instructions. And so here we are at the beginning of this story of Jesus's incarnation, of his appearance, his, his arrival here on the earth, we're meant to sort of say, whoa, wake up, pay attention. But there's also a very particular person, or maybe a group of people that you would say that, that his arrival was very unsettling to. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, there's a whole uh, interesting story of Herod and Herod's response, and why would a Jewish king or a quasi-Jewish king be so disturbed at the news of the king of the Jews? It wasn't this supposed to be Good news. And have you ever been in the situation where you thought your position, whether at work or, or maybe a certain privileged position that you thought you had, and all of a sudden somebody came along and began to maybe pose a threat to that? I've spent a lot of the early, or the last parts of the 10 years, my 10 years here at New Life, the first parts of that were involved with the worship ministry and the music ministry. And it's great to see Don Harris here, who produced a lot of our early records and helped us get started. But Don and others would remind us, young bucks, you know, and say, hey, uh, just so you know, in the music thing, there's always someone better than you. And just when you sort of think that you've arrived, and just sort of when you think that you can get comfortable, oh, there's, you know, this other person coming up, and you sort of feel like, oh, there you go, there's always someone uh, better. And in the case of Kyle Orton and the Denver Broncos, there's someone better that was drafted. You know, you're, so there's always this, this feeling of you never get to sit too comfortably in the place that you're in. Well, Jesus' birth is meant to cause a disturbance. And I think this is sometimes a a thing that we miss because it's a sweet story and there's singing angels and it's just so wonderful. But even the way Luke is telling us this story, he means for us to see how the birth of Jesus is upsetting the status quo. We've talked, the, the, the very first Sunday of Advent, we talked about how Advent is a time where we long for the return of the King. And it's not just a, a, a season where we sort of relive this past coming of Jesus. It is certainly that. But in the reliving of it, the reason we light these candles and say, look, the light of Christ coming into the room and all of that, is it's supposed to make us say, oh, aren't we still longing for King Jesus to complete 
what he began. We sang tonight, O come, O come, Emmanuel, come and rescue us. We're, We're waiting here in exile. There are reminders all around us that this world is still in chains awaiting this. We talked about that in week one. And then in the second week, we talked about the, the, the response to the angel's word, to saying, look, this hope, this hope of salvation, it, it's almost too good to be true, but can we somehow quietly surrender to it? And then last week, with the songs of Mary and the songs of Zechariah, we've been, we talked about how, look, this God has fulfilled a long ago given promise. It's the long-awaited fulfillment of an old, old promise. And so, so far, all of that has been positive. Yes, we're longing for your arrival. Come on, Jesus. Yes, we're going to quietly surrender. Okay, yes, Lord, thank you that you fulfilled your covenant to Abraham. All of that. And now tonight, we come to a, a part of the story where there's a little bit more rub. Because this arrival of Jesus, it is such good news, and yet, it means the end for a certain group of people. In fact, Luke's narrative, if you think about the way his gospel is set up, there's, there's really, he's kind of told his story with contrasting pairs. Uh, in chapter 1, there's an angel that appears to an old man and a young girl, telling both of them in their separate households that they're about to be with child. And then, and then later you see uh, Elizabeth and Mary talking to one another. Here's a woman who got pregnant much later than she had hoped, and another woman who got pregnant much earlier than she thought. And the two of them are, be, are talking to one another. Here in Luke 2, in the beginning, you have angels. The very picture, I suppose, of, of this heavenly realm beings. And then you have shepherds. The guys with dirt in their fingernails and, and you know, hair that hasn't been shampooed in weeks. You know, just the, 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 the contrast here of angels and shepherds. But also in this narrative, uh, later on in this chapter, you'll see Simeon and Anna, two people waiting for Christ's arrival. But right here in this text tonight, there's another contrasting pair. It's Jesus' birth, but it's meant to make us think of Caesar. You say, well, <laughs> meant to take, make us think of Caesar? I mean, it was just sort of an opening line. I mean, isn't Luke just kind of saying in the days of Caesar Augustus? I mean, that's just kind of a, a throwaway. Isn't Luke just kind of giving us a time frame to tell us where to put this story Yes, but more. You see, in the way that Luke tells us about Jesus' birth and Jesus' arrival, it seems like Luke might be borrowing from two well-known narratives. The two narratives that Luke might be drawing from. The first is the Caesar narrative. You see, who is Augustus? Augustus, his adopted father was Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar, whom everyone believed to be divine, and, and Augustus was happy for them to call him, uh, call Julius Caesar divine, because that meant that he could be called the son of God, a title that he willingly accepted. You know, it was one of those things where someone said, you're the son of God, and he said, you really shouldn't. Yes, I am. <laughs> the legend went on and developed after Augustus became Caesar that, that his birth was called gospel. In fact, this word, I mentioned this to you a few weeks ago, this word that we use so much, oh, the gospel, oh, we've got to get back to the gospel, oh, what's the gospel? Well, isn't the gospel that we were sinners and all this stuff, but do you know what that word really was used for? Gospel is not a word that ever shows up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which were the scriptures that all the Jews around Jesus' time would have been familiar with, the Septuagint. 
That word, euangelion, that word gospel, is not a word that shows up in the Old Testament. Where did they get this word from? Why do we call Luke's story the gospel according to Luke? Why do we use this word? Augustus' birth was called gospel, euangelion. It simply means good news. But it has so much more texture to it than just that. We all know, yeah, good news, sure, we've heard that. But by connotation, by usage, it had this texture, this feeling of saying, look, it's good news, the king has come. And Augustus not only took on the title of son of God, but was also called savior of mankind. It's Augustus who introduces peace throughout the empire, the Pax Romana. You may have remembered that somewhere in like eighth grade humanities, like, oh, that's Pax Romana, that sounds familiar. These phrases that they later used of Jesus were first used for Augustus, were first used for Caesar. In fact, it it, it was very common in the cult of emperor worship. If you're going to call him the son of God and say, well, then let's pay homage to him. Let's sort of worship him as if he were divine. And so they would throw around words and sort of part of the campaign, look, Augustus is Caesar. He's the savior of mankind. He is the Prince of Peace. He's brought the Pax Romana. And so words were thrown around like salvation, Savior, freedom, justice, peace. Many of the coins from even Caesar's following this one was the cult of emperor worship sort of continued. Many of the coins from the early stages of the the Roman Empire would have those words inscribed on it to say, look, look, we'll tell you what's really happening. And consider this, obviously this is in a, in a day where coins were, in effect, the mass media of the time. How do you put a message on something that everybody's going to get? I know. Let's put it on the coins. There's no, there's no sort of newspaper or printing. So we'll put it, we'll mince it into the coin. It's, it's Caesar. He brings peace. He brings freedom. He brings justice. These were the words used of the Roman Empire. Imagine now when Luke says, actually, the angels sing, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace to men. He's the one who's bringing peace. Imagine the the, the shock, the contradiction, when the angels say, don't be afraid, I bring you good news. I've got the real euangelion. I've got the real message of hope of good news. It's not that Caesar has, has launched an empire. It's not that there's some magnificent human ruler. It's that Jesus has arrived. But the other narrative that maybe Luke was drawing from that would have been in the back of the minds of, of, of the Jews at the time, I suspect, is the Moses narrative. In fact, when we think about some of, there's some of the, um, the books that, we have, that we've discovered with the Dead Sea Scrolls, that actually it was a, it was a common thing for Jews to comfort themselves to retell the Exodus narrative, to retell it. Now, why would that have been comforting to them? Oh, maybe because they were living under Roman oppression, just like way back when, when they were living in Egypt, right? And so they're retelling the story as a way of hope, and they're saying, okay, look, remember, we were slaves, and there was Moses, and God sent Moses, and he delivered us, and all this stuff, okay? When Luke says, here's a baby being born right under the nose of the evil ruler, And he'll grow up one day to confront this ruler. What do you think is echoing in their minds? They're thinking, Moses. Moses, didn't Moses grow up as a baby right under Pharaoh's nose? 
didn't, wasn't the climactic point of Moses' life, the confrontation that he had with Pharaoh, right? In Luke's gospel, he brings this story to a climactic moment when Jesus stands before who? Pilate. And who's Pilate? Caesar's representative. Do you see that very early in the story we're being told it's Jesus against Caesar? There's something here about this baby's destiny that is going to shake, unravel the systems as they are. In fact, Simeon, uh, later in chapter 2, if you would just flip over to verse 34. I didn't tell you guys about this. But Luke 2, verse 34, it says, Simeon, when he sees the child, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon's not all, he's not full of all just sort of, uh, you know, uh, raindrops and roses and, you know, whatever. This is, this is Simeon saying, okay, this is a big deal. This child will cause many to rise and many to fall. He'll reveal the true contents of your heart. What is this? What is it that this child has come to do? What child is this? Like we sang about earlier tonight. What should we make of this? I think for tonight we can say quite straightforwardly that Jesus has come to confront the rulers of this world. That Jesus has come to confront the rulers of this world. Now when we hear a phrase like that, most of us go right away to think about Satan and, and the demonic and what wasn't there. And certainly that's fair. In fact, we won't take time to read it tonight, but in Revelations 12, verse 1 through 10, there's this striking vision of a woman and a baby and a dragon. And it's just, it's really like, wow, that's in the Bible? I mean, this is like DC comic book stuff. You know, it's very, uh, it's just, these images are powerful images. And so we know, look, we talked about angels showing up. There's, then later John has this picture of all this stuff. There is something cosmic going on that we can trust that part of what Jesus' birth is confronting is spiritual rulers. It, 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 it is spiritual rulers. There, there, there's something about him saying, okay, look, your time is up. You've had your reign. You've had your run of things. But I want you to know that the clock starts now. I'm here. I've arrived. This is going to mean the end of you. It means the end of you has already begun. There's an expiration de- date set for your rule here on earth. This is God finally acting to deal with evil. Let me stop for a moment and say this. This morning I, I-, I had the privilege of talking with a young man who was telling me that He's uh, wrestled with questions about his faith and told me that he'd grown up uh, in a particular denomination and wasn't quite sure what to understand, what to think about Christianity. And We just talked. And there was no way uh, my agenda was not to convince or persuade or argue. But it was very interesting as I just asked him, well, tell me about this God that you're rejecting. Tell me about this faith that you're rejecting. And as it turns out, the God that he was rejecting was really a God who is only punitive, a God who wants to punish and judge, and a God who's moralistic, who wants you to sort of behave, and a God whose ultimate carrot is, in his, is an evacuation plan. 
Now this may sound like the narrative that you've heard. That God's, Jesus' arrival was not to deal with evil in the world. Jesus' arrival was to uh, make it so that all the bad boys and girls can get their presents from Santa. And that present is heaven, right? Now, it's certainly true that forgiveness is part of it. It's certainly true that at the core of what's wrong with the world, we could say, well, isn't at the core of it human selfishness and the sin that's in our hearts? Most certainly. But we're meant to see a much wider story than that. That this God has not come to say, okay, well, good, now you can be forgiven. And, and by the way, what you get now because of forgiveness is, is an escape route. It seems to me that instead of describing the God of the Bible who's actually accomplished a victory, we've described a God who's rather planned an escape. Not a God who's, an accomplished, who's accomplished a victory against evil, but a God who's planned an escape. Okay, guys, this, it's a God who says, okay, this is really messed up. Wow, I didn't see that coming. Uh, well, if you guys would just say this prayer and this thing, and then I'll just forgive you, and then woo, we'll go out of here. Instead of seeing that Jesus' arrival on the earth is meant to confront and deal with all that is evil in the world, beginning with Satan himself, beginning with spiritual rulers, but it doesn't stop there. See, I think it would be easy to say, okay, well, Jesus come to confront rulers in the world. Well, that's just wonderful, and, and uh, I guess that's the devil. And well, thank God that Jesus is dealing with the devil, and, you know, uh, not sure what that means, but uh, just really glad that he's doing that. You know, for the Jews of Jesus' day and for the very first Christians, the ones who followed Christ, they came to see Jesus as not only confronting heavenly rulers, but confronting earthly rulers as well. In fact, it's, it's very difficult. I don't know if you've experienced this, but maybe in your journey of becoming a Christian, all we've heard about is that Jesus has come to confront spiritual rulers. And so, but then we, we kind of read these stories. And what, what do we make of these prophets and, uh, saying things about specific kings of Babylon or Tyre or Sidon? And then we were sort of like, yeah. I don't know, let's just close that part. Let's just go back to Romans or 1 Corinthians. or Let's just go to a letter that I can understand because we don't know how to transpose all the judgment language against earthly rulers in the Old Testament and say, well, what, what does that mean now? Well, I don't really know, and let's not. But you know what I think we're missing when we do that? We're telling people that God is indifferent to oppression. We're telling people that really... Uh, God doesn't care about human trafficking, or God doesn't care about a genocide, and God doesn't care about any of the, God doesn't care about those issues. He really just wants you to quickly say this prayer, believe in Him, be forgiven, and woo, go out of here, get out of here. Is that it? Or did Jesus' birth mean that He came to confront the rulers of this world? Did Jesus' arrival send panic? It did to Herod. What did Herod try to do when he heard the news? I'm not going to repent of my sin. No. He tries to kill him. Kill every child under two. Why? Because it was a threat to his throne. There was something actual about his rule that was being undermined. I want you to think about this for a moment. Because this is difficult for us to wrap our heads around because we live in a wonderful country with, 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 with relative peace and all the luxuries of being able to influence government and shape and all this stuff. But consider what it might be like to be a Christian in China or a Christian in the Middle East, or a Christian in certain parts of Africa or Asia, or a Christian 
even in a country like Malaysia that's technically got religious tolerance, but yet when there's a riot and Muslims are, radicals are burning down churches, the government sort of looks the other way. What's it like to be a Christian in those environments? Does God mean to confront the rulers of the earth? Or did Jesus come to whisk us away? The announcement that the angels say, they're using Caesar language. I don't think it allows us to take an out. I don't think it allows us to say, oh, well, this is just, no, it's just, it's all just spiritual and don't worry, we don't know what it really means for here and now, but just let's just huddle together, sing a few nice songs and just wait and then woo! Or does Jesus' birth mean that the kingdom of God is touching down on earth? Does it really mean that the king has arrived? Does it really mean that Jesus wants us to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Did he really mean that? Or was that just sort of a, why don't you pray, take me away to heaven, and in the meantime, help us to do good stuff on earth? Is that it? You're going to have to rethink this, because we pray the Lord's Prayer each week. And Jesus' birth means something for the rulers of this world. I would suggest that it means a few things. I think it means that we, we, we rethink systems, structures that are oppressive. I think of Randy Wilson and the work that you're doing in regard to the sanctity of life and the family. There's, there's things there that you're trying to say, wait, we're, we're not going to take this. We're, we want to have a voice in this. But there's other ways too. And we, we talk about other causes and other situations where we say, wait, what does it mean to be the people of God living out the kingdom here on this earth? Does believing in Jesus mean that you have to confront systems of oppression and injustice on the earth? I say it does. And I think they believed that it did. But the remarkable thing is what happens, and I, we could talk a lot about this, I suppose, at the Easter time, because the cross for Rome was the symbol of their power. Every time you'd walk along a roadside and see someone on the cross, you, it was a living picture to remind you, don't mess with Rome. Don't challenge this empire. Don't challenge this king, because this king will take your life. And what happens to Jesus? He confronts the spiritual rulers who are at work through earthly rulers. And what happens to Jesus? Imagine what the disciples are thinking when they see him on the cross. They're thinking, ay! This is what we thought would happen. He challenged it. He confronted it. And it ended in death. That's why when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was such breaking news. Because it meant that no earthly ruler would have the last say. That no system of oppression would be the last word. That no system of violence and injustice would ever be permanent. That instead what's permanent is resurrection, is God's redemption, it's God's restoration. See, the real king has come, and that is gospel news. That's the word the angels sing. The angels sing, look, the king of creation has come. We sang tonight the phrase, the world's true Lord. That's Jesus. That's what they're saying. It, it has this undertone of being anti-Caesar, not in some sort of left, leftist, uh, anarchist sort of way. Not that at all. But to say that, look, this is God's earth. This is my Father's world, as the old hymn said. 
And look, the king has now arrived. And it means Satan's time is up, but it means any poser human ruler that's trying to oppress, it means their time is up. But it also means something much more uncomfortable for you and me. It means your time's up. It means your time of being in charge, ruling your life, is over. It means now you've got a choice to say, who's the real king here? Who's the real king? Whose kingship will we acknowledge? Whose lordship do we recognize? If coins were the mass media of the first century and and coins were giving people the promises that Caesar was your source. Caesar will give you freedom. Caesar will give you peace. Look at what he's done. The mass, if the mass media of the first century was saying, look to Caesar as your source, what is the mass media of our day saying? Who does it tell us to look to as our source of freedom, peace, and joy? Scroll back in your heads and think about the commercials you've seen just this weekend. It's amazing how we can take phrases that belong so closely to the sacred story of the incarnation and use those phrases to apply to products. So, oh, peace on earth, here. It's really about life insurance. What happens when you believe the claims they're trying to make? What happens when something that is rich and profound is turned into a slogan? What happens when something that Jesus came to restore to his world gets reduced to something you can buy from a product? What happens when the mass media of our world tells us what our source of joy is, freedom, peace? You know, I think probably a lot of us have similar you know, uh, um, qualities of life. And there's nothing wrong. This is not a statement about a particular car or anything like that. But I will say that it is very difficult to live in this culture and to not believe the claims that they make to us. It's difficult to sort of see it all around every day and to not really think that that's true. How difficult is it to realize that Caesar is a lie and that Jesus is the real Lord. I wonder if there are phrases that we use that can help us, maybe make us aware of it. If you were to say, uh, if only, if only I had that, or if only we had that, if only this thing, this trip, or this vacation, if only, if only, if only... There's lots of things that are nice and great. You know, there are things that make fine house pets that make terrible masters. And I suggest that the process of something becoming Lord over us is one that we're often blind to. We don't realize. We think, well, no, I'm not consumers. I'm not materialistic. I don't care about stuff and gadgets and things. And I don't really think that that's my source. And if you ask me, I would deny it, you know. But somewhere, in our, this, I love it, it's a small enough church, everyone says, bless you, someone sneezes. We all heard it. Um, <laughs> but somewhere in the back of our minds, do we think, if only that, then I would have this. 
If only I had that, then I would have this. Or maybe it's the reverse. Maybe it's the what if. Well, what if I lost that? What if I didn't have that? Would I really, you know? And every product is trying to tell us that they're not just selling us a product. They're selling us some intangible, and they're lying to you. Every smartphone company that says, we're not just selling a phone, we're selling uh, whatever, efficiency or bondage, as many of us can testify to. So many of the claims that are made to us, we must show them out to be a lie. We must show them out to be hollow, to say that's, that's not true, because that's what the first Christians were doing. They were saying Caesar claims he has good news. Caesar claims he has brought peace. Caesar claims he, has, he can give you freedom. But Jesus has come to say Caesar's a lie. That's what I want you to know tonight. That everything that this world is promising you is a lie. It's a lie. There is one who will restore this earth. There is one who will, like we heard read in the New Testament reading, when the times have reached their fulfillment, bring all things in heaven and earth together. He will remake it. He will set it right. Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 2 of the end of war, and the lion, the wolf, and the lamb lying down together, that, that's, that will come to pass. But it doesn't come to pass through some sort of artificial sloganeering, peace on earth. Oh, if only we had the right advertisers. That's what we were missing. It comes to pass when we all say, Christ is the Lord of this world. That this is my Father's world, and Jesus is the King of it. Not me. Not stuff. Not BMW. But my Father. And Jesus is King. Tonight, the reason we kept communion to the end tonight apart from that being the normal flow of events in liturgical churches, is I wanted us to have a special moment as we come preparing our hearts for the table of the Lord to let the Holy Spirit mess with your heart a little bit. Because it's, it's not the sort of thing, I don't want to spell out for you a checklist. You know, if you are, if you said yes to any of the following, then you are worshiping another Lord. Now, but what I do want you to wrestle with is that question. Who are you bowing the knee to in your heart? Who do, whom do you believe? Who do you believe is the real source of freedom, peace? If only the, the marriage, or if only the job, or if only that car, if only, if only, if only. And here stand the angels singing to us. I bring you euangelion, gospel news. The real king is Jesus. Bow to him. Bow to him. Remarkable thing about the way Jesus versus Caesar is here's Caesar in Rome with all his power and all the trappings and here's Jesus in a manger in this feeding trough in the animal quarters. It's very interesting, you know, uh, uh, there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament of a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar who was a pretty big deal, kind of ruled over a pretty large empire. And yet, when he was humbled, do you know what Nebuchadnezzar turned into when he was humbled? He was acting like a beast, eating grass from the field. One who acted like king 
ended up being like a beast. And then we have Jesus who comes to the place where beasts eat, born in a feeding trough of animals. But God has exalted him above every name and given him the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. But how blessed are the ones who bow now. How blessed are the ones who choose now. Jesus, you are the rightful king of my heart, of this earth, of all of creation. May I never believe the claims of this world. May you always show them to be false and a lie. May you reject all that culture and world and rulers and people are trying to tell you. And may you believe the song of the angels. The good news is that Jesus is king. Let's pray. hearts and challenges, changes, make us aware of the, the, the little thrones, the little shrines, the little places we've constructed and allowed, and the little ways that we've started to believe the messages. No, we want to believe the message of the angels, that Jesus is King. Search our hearts with your love, with your love convict us, challenge us. Jesus' name.